Turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to do something this morning uh, that we've done the last several weeks as we've studied the book of Jonah, and that's start at the beginning and read through the text that, uh, that, that we're looking at together this morning. So Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to begin in verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 4, verse 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful, or there's one on the back table back there. Feel free to pick that up and to, to use that so that you can see the words on the page that I'm about to read. Uh, and if you're here this morning, you're visiting with us, you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the back table underneath the offering box. Feel free to pick one of those up. That's our gift to you. Take that with you. And if you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a family member, friend, coworker, neighbor, and uh, you'd like to gift them a Bible, please pick one of those up as well uh, and give that to them so that they can have the Word of God in front of them as often as possible as well. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read again through the end of, end of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what, are you, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, Re weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon, upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it a message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough even to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism reads, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And if you grew up in and around church, you probably know what a catechism is. And if you didn't, that's okay. A catechism is a, a statement of belief. It's a doctrinal statement uh, that is phrased in questions and then answers. Uh, they're meant to be committed to memory so that believers, especially at a young age, can begin to memorize key doctrines of the church. And one of the most popular ones throughout, throughout the last 500 years has been the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death is question one. And the first sentence in the answer reads this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This truth derived from Scripture is designed as a comfort to us that we belong to God. If you're in, if you're in Christ, your comfort is found in the truth that you belong to Christ and that nothing can, like we talked about when we were in the Gospel of John, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand, nothing can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. In Psalm 100, verse 3, the psalmist writes, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Those who are in Christ are God's people, and they belong to God in a special way as part of his flock that he tends to and deeply cares for and loves. But what this does not mean for us when we read, say, Psalm 100 verse 3 or memorize and recite the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what this does not mean is that God does not have full claim over all things. 
that he, did, that he somehow has things within his, in his purview, in his creation, that fall outside of his control and claim. As creator, no part of creation falls outside of God's ownership. David writes in Psalm 24, 1 and 2, he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David, again, the psalmist here states that the earth and everything that's in it belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. Why does God own it all? Well, David answers that question as well in these two verses. For he has founded it, all things, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Or in short, the reason everything belongs to God is because God made it all. This truth is seen clearly in the book of Job. If you're not familiar with the story of Job, Job is a man who is blameless and upright. The scripture calls Job blameless and upright before God. And Job, excuse me, has prospered greatly. In chapter 1, at the beginning of Job, Satan comes to God and tells God that he, is being, he, uh, he has been hanging around on, on the earth. And God asks Satan if Satan has considered Job. Satan here, the, the language means accuser. He is, and he levels an accusation against Job. But God brings Job up and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, of course, Job is upright and blameless because you've given him all of this stuff. He has a great family. He has a ton of livestock. He is very wealthy. Of course, Job is blameless and upright. It's not hard to be blameless and upright. Nothing bad has ever happened to him or his family. This is an accusation from the accuser. Satan tells God that Job will curse him to his face if what Job has is taken from him. And so God grants Satan to take everything from Job except his life. So calamity comes upon Job. His livestock dies or is stolen. His servants are killed except the ones who deliver the messages. And all of his children die. But Job did not, at least not immediately, charge God with wrong. And as the book unfolds, this large poetry section, uh, we see friends giving counsel to Jonah, and they have different premises, and they're arguing different positions throughout. But by the end of the book, Job is demanding God that he shows up to answer some questions about Job's own suffering. Job says, it's not, I haven't sinned. And his friends say, well, you had to have sinned. And he says, but I didn't do that. And is God even just? So he demands that God shows up to answer for all the wrong that's happened to Job. Where is justice if Job has lived uprightly and blamelessly? And so God shows up. He shows up in a whirlwind, and he, but he doesn't answer Job's questions. Rather, God points to his ownership and his perspective of all creation. God owns everything because he created everything, and God sees everything because he is greater than all things. Job wants to know why he suffered, and God responds by telling Job to trust him because of his all-knowing, ever-present, absolute, authoritative position over creation. This is God's answer to Job. God's answer to Job, I have an all-knowing, ever-present, absolute, authoritative position over creation. It belongs to me. I made it. The prophet Isaiah says something in Isaiah 45, 9. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Essentially, woe to the one who, who tries to grapple with or wrestle with the one who made him. Woe to the creature who goes to the creator and makes demands of him. 
Isaiah says, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, why are you making? Or your work has no handles. A criticism. The creature is to submit to and trust in the creator's design. Every one of us in this room is a creature. We are all made to submit to and trust in the creator's design. So now we're at the final chapter of the book of Jonah, chapter 4. And we find an angry Jonah. Not, not really a surprise, right? We find an angry Jonah. And sure, in the second half of the book, you'll remember that this book is laid out into two major sections, chapters 1 and 2, and then chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 1 and 2 are uh, the first panel or section of the story, and then chapters 3 and 4 are the second panel or section of the story, because we see right away in chapter 1 that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he tells him to go to Nineveh, to call out against it, to call for repentance. And then in chapter 3, after Jonah has fled, been swallowed by a great fish, vomited back up onto the land, then in chapter 3, God says it again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it the message that I tell you. So, the second time, Jonah obeys this action. But now, we learn, again, not a surprise, but we learn that Jonah is not happy about any of it. He's not pleased. Sure, he obeyed, but he obeyed in a begrudging manner. Jonah's a, a bit of a, a and he's, he likes drama. But God isn't done with Jonah. God is not done with Jonah. And we see so clearly God's patience towards a man who remains embittered and angry and frustrated when the word of the Lord comes to him. There are two things that I want you to consider this morning. Two things to guide our time together. The first is simply Jonah's attitude issue. And the second thing is God's goodness and grace. First, Jonah's attitude issue. Second, God's goodness and grace. These will guide our time together. So first, Jonah's attitude issue here in chapter 4. We see it right away in verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. In chapter 3, when the Ninevites repented, we're told that God chose not to bring disaster upon them, and we're told now that Jonah is mad about it. Jonah prays to God here in chapter 4 for the second time in the book, and that parallels again chapter 2. He prays for the second time in the book. The first prayer was from the belly of the fish after he was swallowed up and preserved in the belly of the fish, and that was a prayer in that instance of repentance. By the time we get to the end of that prayer, at the end of chapter 2, uh, Jonah is uh, Jonah is calling out to the Lord in repentance. In verse 9, he says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah acknowledges who he is and turns from his sin to obey again at the beginning of chapter 3. But now in chapter 4, Jonah prays again. And this is a different type of prayer. It's a prayer out of anger. Jonah is mad, and this is so interesting that the way that Jonah says this, um, he says, of course this is what was going to happen. Is this not what I said to you before I fled to Tarshish? And the reason why I fled to Tarshish, why did I flee to Tarshish? Because I know who you are, God. Because I know your character. I know that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And now that character that God possesses has been put on full display for those in Nineveh, Israel's enemies, and Jonah is upset. He's upset that God has acted according to his character. God is slow to anger, but Jonah is not slow to anger, and he addresses God in anger. And then Jonah asks to die. And remember that Jonah is the first prophet. 
He's the first prophet of Israel that is commissioned by God to go to a Gentile nation. The first prophet by, uh, commissioned by God to go to a Gentile people, a non-Jewish people. The nation of Israel had provoked God to jealousy over generation upon generation of idol worship. And so, according to what God told Moses, God is now provoking Israel to jealousy. In Deuteronomy 32, at the end of Moses' life, he says, if this, this people, this nation of Israel provokes me to jealousy, I will in turn provoke them to jealousy by turning my attention to a different people altogether. And that's exactly what he does. He turns his attention to Assyria. He turns his attention to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Jonah would forever be known by Israel as the prophet who took the message of repentance to Israel's enemies. He doesn't want to endure that. He'd rather die. But in verse 4, Jonah throws this little tantrum, and he says, of course, of course, God, I knew you'd act according to your character. And he throws this little tantrum, and God patiently asks this question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? When I read that question that God asks, I'm convicted in my own parenting. Because when a child comes to me and says, you've wronged me by doing this, this, and this, and when they're off base, how do I respond? <laughs> Not like this. Not in patience, like God says. He just says, do you do well to be angry? But here, like a sulky child, Jonah doesn't answer. You can almost hear the eye roll in the text. Like, oh my gosh, are you serious? Are you kidding me? Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah goes outside of the city then. He builds a booth as shelter. Then God appoints a plant to protect Jonah from the discomfort of the sun. But the next day, God appoints the worm to eat the plant, and the sun beats down on Jonah. Now, if you think that's weird, consider how this interaction all goes together. Because now Jonah really wants to die. Because he is not only upset about the repentance of Nineveh, but now he's upset about his own discomfort. And God asks him again at the end of this this interaction, he says, do you do well to be angry? But here's the prepositional phrase, for the plant. And this time, Jonah responds, and he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah wanted the plant to be saved. But Jonah did not, nothing to make the plant grow. Jonah did nothing, and this is what God points out to him. He did nothing to make the plant grow. It was God who appointed the plant. Note the same word appointed here. He appoints the plant. He appoints the east wind. He appoints the worm. And he appoints the great fish in chapter 1, verse 17. This is meant to indicate to us that God is in ownership of all of creation. Big fish, worms, plants, wind, all of it. It is all within God's ownership. God is sovereign over his creation. And so Jonah wanted the plant to be saved for his comfort. And Jonah didn't want Nineveh to be saved for his comfort. But at the end of chapter 2 and verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Does God not have the right to save what belongs to him? And of course, the answer is yes, of course he does. Jonah's attitude here in chapter 4 is dictated heavily by his circumstances. Jonah's attitude is dictated heavily by his circumstances because at the beginning of chapter 4, he's angry because the Ninevites repented, and he's exceedingly glad because the plant comes up and gives him some personal relief, but then he's mad again He's angry again when the plant withers. 
Jonah's attitude, the external things happening around him, up and down, total roller coaster for Jonah. Brothers and sisters, is this true of you? Are, are your circumstances the dictator of your attitude? Here in the upper Midwest, we're complex creatures. I think we do this quite well. I think we let our circumstances dictate our attitude pretty well. For instance, when things are going well, we don't want to give off the impression that they're going too well. So we ensure that we, everyone knows around us that we're a little overcommitted, that we're a little too busy, that we're a little bit drained. We let everyone know that things aren't quite ideal for us in the moment. Sometimes we're less complex, though, and simple interactions with others or lack of interactions with others make us frustrated. They make us angry. They make us happy. Pick an emotion. What God is communicating to Jonah is that Jonah should trust God with what belongs to God. What God is communicating to Jonah and to us through this book is that we should be and should trust God with what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Nothing that God owns, he mismanages. God owns everything. God mismanages nothing. So, God, every raindrop, every molecule, every supernova is managed perfectly by God. Every promise that God makes, he follows through on and is always perfectly kept. God and his, the, his desire to save the salvation that belongs to the Lord is no exception. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he extends it to whom he desires and executes it perfectly for those to whom he extends it. Everything belongs to God. God mismanages nothing. The call here then at the heart of what is happening here in chapter 4 is a call to trust God. This is a call to trust God. You no doubt remember, if you played a sport, you no doubt remember uh, Philippians 4.13 because it's probably plastered on the wall somewhere in your locker room. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Of course, if it's plastered on the wall in your locker room, it's taken out of context, and that's not what is happening at all. But Philippians 4.13 is about trusting God no matter circumstances, not allowing our circumstances to dictate our attitude. Because in Philippians 4.12, what the Apostle Paul writes, which is less quoted but extremely important, says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The highs and lows of life. The Apostle Paul is saying he can trust God in all things. He has the strength to trust God and rely on him in all things. He says, the secret, I had learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And you have to go up the page to the verse before it to find out what the secret is. It's in verse 11. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Contentedness here is the secret. When we're trusting God with all that belongs to him and realizing that God mismanages nothing in his creation... We will be content, trusting God with everything. The reason Jonah's circumstances, the reason the situation that Jonah finds himself in dictates his attitude 
is because he failed to trust God to manage what belongs to God perfectly. And therefore, the reason our circumstances dictate our attitude to the world around us, to our loved ones, to those we interact with, is because we fail to trust God to manage all things perfectly. Jonah's attitude here, his anger, God asks him about, do you do well to be angry? His anger is an accusation against God. He wanted to die because the Ninevites repented with God's good, merciful message. And Jonah was angry because God did what God wanted to do with what God owned. And our own joylessness, our own lack of contentment, our own frustration, our own anger in any given situation is a lack of trust for God to manage what is rightfully his. To manage it and to manage it perfectly. This week, this afternoon, in 30 minutes, when you walk out the doors, you'll be faced with less than ideal circumstances because of situations that are way outside of your control. Will you trust the Lord to manage what belongs to him? And will you trust him to do it correctly? Or will you grow angry like Jonah, embittered towards him? This is the first point this morning. We see Jonah's attitude issue as an accusation against God to manage what is rightfully his. Our second point, though, we see here God's goodness and grace. God's goodness and grace is all on display all throughout the book of Jonah. Over and over and over again, God is giving. God is giving Jonah his word. God is giving Jonah a way out of the destructive trajectory of his sin. His sin, when he got on the boat to flee to Tarshish, he went down, they threw him into the ocean, they threw him into the sea where he surely should have died, and yet God gives a way out. God gives him a way to be preserved in the great fish. God gives in chapter 3 Jonah a second chance to obey. God also gives uh, many others, other than Jonah himself, things. He gives the sailors a way to be saved. He gives the Ninevites a chance to repent. And we could say many other things, I think, here as well. And Jonah says it himself in in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says that God is a gracious God. God is generous. He's gracious. He's giving. God's grace is on display in God's saving acts, but also just in the day-to-day life. Jonah deserves nothing that he gets from God. And it was like, yes, of course, we, we, that's clear here, and that's the point, is that Jonah deserves nothing that he gets from God. He could have just been thrown overboard, and God said, like, okay, we'll find somebody else and let Jonah drown, or just let him go on the boat to Tarshish by himself run away. God doesn't deserve, or Jonah doesn't deserve for God to choose Jonah to take his word to the Ninevites. He didn't deserve the position to begin with. Jonah didn't deserve for God to deliver him from drowning. God, or Jonah didn't deserve a second chance to take the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. Jonah didn't deserve the patience that God shows him again here in chapter 4. And asking these questions, do you do well to be angry? And when the worm was appointed here in this text to eat the plant that was sheltering Jonah, Jonah fails to see the gift that it was. It was a temporary gift, but it was a gift. Rather, Jonah acts entitled to it. He's angry that the plant did not remain and give him continual relief. When we act entitled, we are blinded to God's goodness and grace. All that you have, all that I have, everything that any one of us in this room has is not deserved. 
Jonah fails to see that it was God's grace that brought him to this place outside of Nineveh. The plant would have never factored into the equation because Jonah would have been dead somewhere in the middle of the sea. This is not the case. Friends, are you, are you living like God owes you something? Like you've done something that should gain God's attention? God is gracious, and so he created us to reflect that grace. Undeserving creatures receiving undeserved favor. This is everyone in this room. Jonah says himself in verse 2 of chapter 4 that God is a gracious God, and so this should be our definition of grace. Undeserving creatures receiving undeserved favor. And the result of this undeserving favor that was shown to Jonah should have been gratitude. And we see very quickly that he was, he turned the right, just for a moment. If you look in verse nine again of chapter two, and he says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving, this is gratitude, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, Jonah should have had a heart of gratitude for all that God had given him, all the things that he was given that he did not deserve. And the first time God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Maybe Jonah could have made a case. He doesn't say anything, but maybe he could have said something. He would have been wrong to say these things, but maybe he could have said something. He could have said something. God, I'm angry that you showed mercy to an enemy of my people. God, I'm angry that you graciously gave Nineveh a chance to repent. Now, his anger would have been misguided. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord and God will extend mercy to whom he desires. But the second time God asks Jonah, do you well to be angry? God asks for the plant. And this really shows how Jonah doubles down on his anger. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But the situation with the plant is just a mirror. It's just a mirror held up to Jonah to show exactly what was making him angry. How will Jonah respond to God's goodness and grace? Will he see that God is good and gracious and that should bring about gratitude in Jonah? Or will Jonah remain angry? And it's, it's the latter. And this should operate then as a warning to us. We see the mirror of the plant held up. Will we double down in anger? Will we double down in anger? When we feel angry, it's not wrong, and we see this in the Psalms often, it's not wrong to take that to the Lord. To say, I'm feeling this emotion, God. I, I want, I, and, and go to God and to have it out. But what Jonah does instead is he levels God's character as an accusation against God. He accuses God of mismanaging what rightly belongs to God. And then he doubles down in anger over a small thing like a plant. And so are you doubling down in anger? You feel angry and embittered. You refuse to talk to God about it. You bottle it up. And it gets to the spot where you're ready to explode. Are you refusing to recognize that God has given to you over and over and over again? Or are you dwelling on the things that you don't have, thinking that you deserve those things? Look at all these people that have all this stuff. I'm doing a lot better than they are, a lot more upright. Why don't I have those things? Or are you wishing to have something that you once had that is now gone? Not seeing it as a gift when you had it and having a heart of gratitude in that moment. But now you're angry and embittered because you just want it back. Friends, God is gracious. 
He gives good gifts. And everything that you have is a gift. We are all undeserving creatures receiving undeserved favor. This all points us to God's goodness and grace throughout the book and in this chapter. That'll lead us to make a couple of concluding statements. A couple of concluding statements this morning. Because Jonah is angry, it would behoove us to talk just for a moment about anger ourselves. Our anger reveals a lot about us. Here are two things. This is not always the case. Damon read earlier from Ephesians. There's obviously an anger that doesn't result in sin because Paul says, be angry and do not sin. But when our anger reveals these things about us, it is in fact sinful, like Jonah. Our anger reveals a lot about us, and often our anger is an accusation against God, again, believing that he has mismanaged his creation. And so I would ask this to you. If you're feeling anger or embittered in any way this morning, is it because you believe that God has mismanaged something in your life? Is there something in your life that you're angry about, even just a little bit, creating just a little corner of bitterness in your heart, that when someone pokes it or someone says something adjacent to it, it flares up? You can't seem to pull out of a financial hole or your kids have gone wayward or your workplace has become full of strife or someone you trusted betrayed that trust or you've worked really hard but you have far less to show for it than a bunch of people who worked a lot less hard than you did. You're you're frustrated about that. You're angry about it. But friends, God manages his creation perfectly. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is his to do with what he likes. Which one of us was present? This is God's argument to Job. Which one of us was present when he laid the foundations of the earth? Which one of us has the mind to understand the complexities of running a universe. Can you see how accusing God of getting your situation wrong is unbelief? We make far too much of ourselves and diminish God when we question his ability to manage his creation. Do you see what God sees? No. You have peeling paint on your house that's gone ignored. You don't know where your needle nose pliers are and your dog ran away for a few hours last week. And we are angry with God thinking that he could manage the world a little bit better. The call here is to repent. This is a prideful position. To repent of arrogance and turn back to him and trust God to manage what is rightfully his perfectly. Acknowledge God as Lord of all and learn to be content with whatever your lot is. You may have heard the story of Horatio Spafford. In 1871, his four-year-old son died in the Chicago fire. Spafford was a successful lawyer and the fire ruined him financially. He had intended to go across the, across the Atlantic to England to assist D.L. Moody in an evangel- evangelistic events, but the aftermath of the fire, because of his, his position as a lawyer, delayed him, and so he sent his wife and four daughters on a ship ahead of him, saying, I'll catch up with you later. But the ship that his wife and four daughters were on struck another ship and sunk, and his four daughters died. His wife, however, was spared, and when Spafford was traveling to meet his grieving wife, he wrote the well-known hymn, 
it is well with my soul. And of course, if you're familiar with that hymn, the first verse goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Did God mismanage his creation? Our anger may be an accusation of mismanagement against God. The other thing that our anger might reveal against us or reveal about us is our anger is often a refusal to see all that we have as a gift. Anger that comes from entitlement and discontent is the opposite of gratitude. Are you grateful for all that you have? God has poured out an abundance of grace on you and everything that you have because you deserve none of it. Even the difficulty that God brings to you. No one wants to get swallowed by a big fish like Jonah did or take a message of repentance to your nation's enemies. No one wants to have their basement fill up with water or have a loved one diagnosed with cancer. But friends, God does not mismanage his creation. And these two are gifts. We might not know or see exactly how that works. But God has promised that whatever comes our way, whatever suffering, hardship, trial, that God will not waste it. But he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is a special kind of love for those who are in Christ. This is not, this is not mismanagement. It is God seeing all things and managing his creation according to his will. God tells us in his word that he uses our difficulties also to produce good things in us. This is a gift. Like Jonah did, do not resist the gift of difficulty that God brings into your life. Don't double down in anger. Don't become embittered. God means to use it for your good if you are in Christ. The last thing I want to leave you with as we end our time together in this book is that salvation belongs to the Lord. We started out our time in this book looking at chapter 2, verse 9. That is the heart of the book. It's smack dab in the middle, and it's the statement that we need to hold on to in this book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God's grace is seen in all things. Everyone to ever live has benefited from what we would consider common grace. That all that we have has been given to us by God. Undeserving creatures receiving undeserved favor. That God is patient and kind, giving sinners good things. The sun, the rain, breath, the basics of life. All of it is undeserved. But God also chooses to extend special grace or saving grace to all kinds of people. He does it with the sailors. He does it with the Ninevites, after he's been doing it for generation upon generation with his people and in the person of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ has come to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, to all kinds of people. The offer of salvation comes to everyone, no matter your background, your blood, your last name, anything that you've done, the offer of salvation comes to you, it comes to me. Not because of works performed in the flesh, but because of the grace of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This grace the Apostle Paul discusses in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Salvation is not of our own doing. It's not of our own works. It is a gift of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So all who receive salvation must acknowledge that they are undeserving of it. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And I fear that there are some in this room this morning who have come week after week who are trusting in something other than the person of Jesus Christ for the salvation. If you think even just a little bit in the back of your mind that you are deserving somehow of what God has extended to you in Jesus Christ, you're showing that you have not received it. Turn away from that thought and trust Jesus as the exclusive way to the Father. There is no other way to be saved outside of Jesus. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. You can have no life apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord. How does God save his people? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ alone, God saves his people. The call to us is to humble ourselves before God. Come to him with hands empty. If you're here this morning, if you trusted Jesus in a time past, and you're thinking to yourself, I'm doing pretty well, turn away from that arrogance and sin and trust in Christ alone. Jesus Christ in him alone. Do not say, but God, look at all the wonderful things I've done for you. Rather say, God, apart from you, I have nothing. I am sinful. Save me according to your grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Let's pray. God, we are exceedingly grateful for your word and how it communicates to us, how it communicates to us that all we have, all that we are, comes from undeserved grace. God, would our hearts now be renewed in the understanding that you have, in Christ, extended salvation to us. And for those who have trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and turned to follow him, God, we praise your name with hearts of gratitude that they will spend eternity in your presence. God, if there are men and women, boys and girls who have not professed Christ or who are trusting in the works of their hands for salvation, God, would you now, in this moment, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Convict them deeply and may they turn to you and trust you and you alone. God, our hope is in Jesus Christ. God, would we see Jesus Christ as more beautiful than anything this world has to offer? God, would our hearts be drawn to him this week, seeking to obey all that he commands to us, knowing that his commands are not burdensome, God but that those commands given to us are life and blessing. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.